In this episode, we talk about what is the Eucharist, what does the Catholic Church teach, and how do I have a personal encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist and maybe help others to have their own Eucharistic revival. So we got to interview Tim Glamkowski and all that and more coming up next. Tim, welcome to the Catholic Link Show. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, we are so excited to have Tim Glankowski on the show. He is the executive director of the National Eucharistic Congress and the founder and president of Revive Parishes. Here to talk all about the Eucharist and, man, all of the exciting stuff that's going on in the church right now. So, Tim, could you explain to us a little bit about, man, what are the bishops in our country seeing as kind of the problem and and yeah, how do we start to get after what's going on with the revival and, and the church right now? Yeah, it's a great question. So if people ask me, I was like, what is the Eucharistic revival? Well, it's a movement, a grassroots movement of Catholics who are you know, going to be healed, formed, converted, unified, uh, so that they can be sent on mission for the life of the world through a renewed encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist. And I think the, the narrative is pretty simple, right? The world is so obviously broken, right, and in need of healing. And the church, which has been sent by Jesus to be uh, the normative avenue where he would bring life and healing and uh, to the world, is herself wounded in so many ways. And that's displayed most clearly, I think, by uh, the results of a Pew Research study that came out in 2019 that said, you know, like something like 70% of Catholics don't have a complete understanding or belief of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And so really the point of this whole Eucharistic revival is to re-enkindle a living relationship with Jesus in the Eucharist through a variety of means, through events and catechesis and small groups and processions and, you know, uh, beautiful liturgy and, and all those different things, right, brought to bear on tackling sort of this one core issue, which I think will have dramatic effects in the life of the church, you know, all over the place, because I think that issue is, is um, even more problematic than it may seem just as, you know, like one of many issues. I think it's a really core um, and central one. I think that's such a good point of this is the center of our faith. And this is what makes Catholics different is that we believe that the Eucharist, that piece of bread and that glass of wine <laughs> turns into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And I think right there, why is that hard for us to believe? Where do you think we've struggled to get that teaching across if in fact 70% of Catholics don't really understand that? And what can we do about that? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think even backing up uh, a, a little bit more is um, sort of this idea of uh, like for the Catholics who do, right? Like everything changes. Like for me, when I was 18, uh, I went to a youth conference and I encountered Jesus in the Eucharist. And I went from being what I considered myself sort of the black sheep in my family I'm from this very Catholic family. And I was like the rebellious, you know, teenager in middle school and high school and everything changed, right? It's like, if this is real and if it's true, uh, I was enough of like a, a philosophical, you know, uh, kid maybe to like really wrestle with like, what does that mean? And so you see that in terms of the life of, of devotion and the commitment to weekly mass and, and the, the prayer life and, and even like the transformation that takes place in people's lives when they do come to believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. But but like you said, it's difficult, I think, because uh, it's it's we even say it right in the the tantum marital, right? Like where, where feeble senses fail, you know, like 
yep. our senses and in the world, which is so used to verifying belief only through empirical evidence and data, what I can touch and what I can see and, and, and fe that, that feels like experience, right? Experience is only that which is, which is tangible or touchable. And so when we're talking about belief in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, we're identifying a, a, a more fundamental issue in our culture today, which is like belief is hard for a lot of people. Uh, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Blaise Pascal is a great quote and is, is, is on a great work called the, the Pensees, uh, 187, where he says, um, people fear religion, right? Uh, and they, 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 they hate it, he even says, right? Which is, he's kind of, you know, he's, he's an intense guy, Pascal, but... Um, you know, because they, they fear that it's true. Um, and so in order to actually help people come to faith, we have to show them that religion is verse, first, he says, venerable, right? That belief is rational, that it makes sense. It's not like completely ridiculous to believe in something like some people believe. Then we have to show that it's lovable so that good people will actually hope that it's true, right? That there's something there that's actually worth loving um, and centering your life around. And then we can prove that it's true. So when we're talking about taking someone from a place where they don't believe that, that, that transubstantiation takes place, that, that bread and wine becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, we're talking about the evangelistic uh, energies of the church, you know, at large. Like, how do we help people move from a place uh, where, where so many today, you know, we, we the church is used to operating evangelistically in this Christendom culture where it's like mm -hmm. the assumed furniture of most people's minds is sort of yeah. based on Christian values and beliefs. Like even if they, uh, you know, aren't fully living the gospel, they at least sort of believe in a personal God and in an afterlife. And there's sort of this uh, basic, you know, the trappings of Christianity have sort of shaped their worldview. And that's not the case anymore, right? But if we're going to attack that problem, even for somebody in our pews where they're coming, they're engaged mm -hmm. and we've done these studies where we've looked at like, what does belief even look like in the pews in the Eucharist? And it's like you know, huge percentages, like 30% of Catholics, even who are in the, the pews every Sunday, believe that the bread and wine is just a symbol. And so if we're going to attack that, it's going to look like this really rich evangelistic energy, more than just, you know, sort of like, we just need to tell people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We need to convince them it's true. We need to show them all the reasons it makes sense in scripture and in the church fathers and all those different, and like, but we also have to, we have to back that work up a little bit to get to the place yeah. where they'll be open to hearing that. Mm. I will say for our viewers, if all of that was overwhelming and you are wondering, okay, what is the church's teaching yes. on the Eucharist? Uh, we will link up above a video that does break down scripture. If you come from that background and does break down the early church fathers uh, on why the church believes this and why we personally believe in the Eucharist. Yeah, I, I remember when I was in eighth grade, uh, I didn't grow up Catholic, but I went to a Catholic school and we had a speaker come in, Sean Forrest, who gave a talk and he had us close our eyes and he said, okay, um, for all of you who believe that the Eucharist is, uh, you know, just a piece of bread, go ahead and raise your hand. And I was like, oh, I know it's not that answer. And the next, he's like, okay, now if you really believe that the Eucharist is a true symbol of Jesus's sacrifice, raise your hand. And I was like, yeah, that's the one. I didn't know there was a third option. He was like, okay, now if you believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord, raise your hand. And I, I kind of realized at that point that that I had a lot to learn and that I, I didn't really un understand this the church's teaching, which is uh, you know the source and summit of our faith. So could you 
maybe for our listeners who are out there, who are maybe who are in my position, uh, who are trying to wrestle with this, grasp this, you know, this idea of faith, where, where would they start in, in this journey on uh, learning and reviving their faith about the Eucharist? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. So I, you know, say the um, same was true for me, right? Even after having that encounter uh, at that youth conference, I'm not sure that I really like would have said I understood, you know, had a complete understanding of what the church's teaching was there, right? So uh, the the idea uh, is that, you know, while the uh, appearance of bread and wine remain in, in the Eucharist, that the substance or like what you would call the thing, right? When you point to the thing and say, what is it? Before the consecration, you would say bread and wine. And mm-hmm. after the words of institution are said by the priest, you would say Jesus Christ, right? Body, blood, soul, divinity. And that's a miracle, right? The accidents, normally when things change, the accidents change and the substance stays the same. I cut my hair. I'm still Tim you know, when you point at it, but you know, my haircut or whatever. So, <laughs> The church's teaching is that that and that's that's like dramatic, right? When you hear that, you're like, whoa. So where does that come from? Or or why do we believe that? Well, because Jesus himself set it up that way. And and I didn't realize this. I grew up in a in a town called Wheaton, Illinois. And Wheaton is known for being like one of the most there's more churches per square mile than any town in the world or something. It's a, it's a it's an evangelical Christian hub. There's Wheaton College there, which is sort of like the if you rolled like Harvard and Francis mm-hmm. University of Steubenville into one thing and like it would be like Wheaton College, right? It's like this great evangelical school. And so I, I heard a lot of like things about my faith growing up where people disagreed, other Christians disagreed with the church's teaching, but never really had an ability myself to say why, you know, we believed what we believed or, or really even understood what we believed all the way. And so it wasn't until college that I was in a few scripture classes that I realized when you look at the history of the church, the earliest documents that we have about the church's practice and like what the people who were closest to the time of Jesus believed about the way that they were called to worship is that it was always the Didache is the the oldest Christian document that we have, right? Uh, Extra biblical outside of the Bible document. And it's very clear, like, here's how we worship. We gather on Sundays and we like receive the Eucharist and it's like right there. And you, and you look at that and you think like, Holy cow, this wasn't some like invention uh, of the popes in like the the 1500s, like the super something like this is from the earliest days. And then you start looking at scripture. One of my, the, 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 the clearest one for me, you look at the writings of St. Paul, he's talking about like, if we eat the bread, and, you know, the, the, the body and blood of Jesus in vain, like we bring condemnation on ourselves. Like it's, it's littered in there throughout, but I don't think you can get any more clear in my mind than John chapter six. Um, in the bread of life discourse. That, that's where I would go. If I'd recommend to any person anywhere, I'd go find a great article or a book from a Scott Hahn or a Brant Petrie. There's a book yep. called Roots of the Eucharist that just totally rocked my world when I read it the first time. My wife too is one of her favorite books. Um, but so clear there. Jesus feeds the 5,000 basically. This chapter is like all about the Eucharist and he feeds the 5,000 uh, first thing. And then they come back to him looking for him to feed them again. And he takes that chance to bring them deeper. Uh, into what he's actually trying to, how he's actually trying to feed them, right? Like this moment became an occasion to teach them something clear. And, and this is a huge crowd, right? It says 5,000 men we fed, meaning there weren't just men there. So there's, I don't know, 15, you know, I'm thinking like the Pepsi Center here in Denver, right? Like, <laughs> like a basketball arena worth listening to him talk. And so he says, 
unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life within you. Right? I am the bread of life who came down from heaven, who eats his bread and drinks my blood will live forever. Right. And they're like, kind of like toying with him. Like they, they're like, well, great. Give us that bread too. Like just still trying to get lunch out of it. But then <laughs> increasingly, if you read the original Greek, especially you can realize like how clear he's getting, like as he goes, he's drilling deeper and deeper until he actually switches the word he's using because he's been using this Greek verb phago which means like, unless you eat my flesh, but it could be taken sort of like, uh, like a, you know, an analogy or a symbol or something like that. Like, just like, you know, we can say like to a kid, I, I could eat you up, you know, like you could <laughs> take it that way. And so he actually switches the word to this Greek verb trogo, which means like chew or munch. Like, uh, no, no, I'm saying to you, amen, amen, I say to you, right? We hear these things and we're like, we, we miss sort of the concept. He's like, I'm not kidding. Unless you trogo, chew my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life within you, right? And then they realize what he's saying. Like one of the one of the greatest proofs uh, to the to the to the fact that Jesus is actually really present in the Eucharist is the reaction of the crowd to him, because they leave. I mean, they're like, okay, this this just turned into a cult. Like this got weird, you know. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not for this anymore. Like this, this guy's, he's off his rocker. And so he could have said, right. You're thinking this public ministry, he's trying to make an impact, start a movement, all these things, right. 20,000 people arrayed in front of him and he delivers this difficult teaching and they walk away. And if he was just talking symbolically, he would have said, right. Like, no, come back. I'm not like, I'm just joking. You know, I, mm -hmm. I see all kinds of things. I'm the vine. You know, this is like, this is one of those, like, uh, I'm using an image here. Right. But he turns instead to his apostles, his closest friends and says, will you lead me too?" Right. Like, no, this is it. This is how I want to be with you to the end of time. Uh, and you don't get it right now. And Peter says, Peter admits that, right? He, he responds to our Lord and he says, uh, Lord, to whom would we go? Right? Like, not like I get it or this clear or this makes sense or it's like, this is hard, right? But yeah. to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I think for me, when I when I saw that sort of laid out by someone, again, mm -hmm. you know, someone who could really like unpack that, that teaching for me, it was like this light bulb went off where I was like, holy cow. And I just started hungering, right? I wanted to be at daily mass. I wanted to go to adoration because it's like, again, if that's real and if it's true, uh, like I said before, then it's the one great thing to love of all the loves, like J.R.R. Tolkien said, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important. I mean, John chapter six is is so beautiful. We'll, we'll link to some more resources that you're talking about there. And, and something that convinced me in all of this was the fact that one, he doubles down on it. To, in all of his other metaphors, right, he starts to explain some of these. I am the vine, you are the branches. Um, I am the light of the world. It's not like he's like saying, I am the light, this is the light, uh, If you, and my eyes are going to be bioluminescent, and so you're going to use them as flashlights. And, like he, and, and people don't walk away when he says, I am the light, or I am the vine, but when he says, I am the bread, and you must eat of this. And that's when people start walking away. And he doesn't say, no, come back. I was just kidding. Uh, he lets them go. Um, and then, yeah, Peter's great profession of faith that says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I think back when we look at Old Testament and we look at Moses and the manna that was given was to physically feed the people and the Eucharist is given to spiritually feed us. And as you talked about, we're moving away from this Christendom. We're moving away from this life that believes in faith and we need the science and we need the proof and to understand that miracle. And I think part of that might be that we're moving away from allowing the spiritual food into our lives and the grace to pour in. And so to kind of back up to your point about evangelization and the fact that we have to kind of peel back this because I'm not talking to 
a lot of Christians sometimes. And maybe I'm not talking to somebody where John chapter 6 makes sense uh, or is valid words. Uh, How do we help people have that heart encounter, have that initial evangelization? Yeah, that's such a good question. Man, this is great. Uh, (laughs) This is so good. Um, Great questions. You guys are really good at this. (laughs) This Thank you. Yeah. um, I think you're right. That that typology is compelling. Uh, That's how we call it. That reading, you read the Old Testament in light of what's coming Mm -hmm. in the new, like what's happening in the old is prefiguring the new. And it sort of like helps to verify those things. Or you you read a a John chapter six and you see the teaching, you know, so clearly laid out and like that works for me or that works for, you know, someone who kind of has basic faith, but for someone who doesn't have faith, I would say two things, right? Like one kind of practically, right? Before I'll get kind of philosophical about it. Kind of practically, uh, Eucharistic miracles are really compelling. Like there's a lot of scientific data to back up Eucharistic yeah. miracles. And I think that can sort of elicit curiosity in someone where they can say like, that's sort of weird, uh, you know, but even miracles sometimes. There's a great story of a, an athe- a famous atheist who went to Lourdes um, and he said, unless I see someone healed myself, I won't believe in the miracle here. This is in the late 1800s. And he actually watched, right? Our Lord performed a miracle in front of him. A woman uh, who had horrible disfigurement and like, like um, from a, from a disease, you know, skin and all this different things went into the water and came out just like perfectly. Um, it's actually kind of sad, but his response was the famous atheist was take her away. She's still too ugly for me. Right. So he, the, here's, here's the point, right? There's a heart that's hardened there to believe like no matter what he sees, yeah. but some people are more open and more genuinely curious and, and, and want to understand. And I'll say two things about that. Right. So Eucharistic miracles, I think can sort of present to some people an opportunity who are open enough, like there might be something there. People in order to believe have to walk through a progression, like I described, right? Where it's like, Mm -hmm. does it make sense to believe? Would I love for that to be true? Now prove it to me. So does it make sense to believe? I think we have to go do all that basic work. Does it make sense to believe in a God, to believe in the Bible? Is it rational, right? Like, are there, you know, what about some of the difficult questions or scandals in the Mm -hmm. church or like whatever obstacles exist, right? To people's belief, like we have to address those uh, along the sort of like evangelistic process. Then I think we need to tell the story. Like, I don't think people understand what Eucharist even fits in, in the whole picture where it's like, what has God done in Jesus Christ? Does he want to just condemn you? Does he want to just judge you? Like, is God even someone you'd want to have a relationship with? Or is he a loving father who from all eternity, when we were lost, right, taken into sin and death, that he moved mountains, did whatever he could, sent his only son. Why? To condemn us? No, to bring life and life to the full in this life and in the next, right? And that, in that relationship with Jesus, the freedom to live the way my heart desires to live, right? And my deepest desires is actually made possible and present. And I'll, I'll, I'll be able to understand that when I encounter Jesus in the Eucharist, right? And then we can get to John 6 and, and all those different things. But here's what that takes. Here's why I'm pumped about the Eucharistic revival. I used to have, so I taught high school theology, which you can probably tell, right? So I just, I would just talk like this at my students all day. It's just, God bless them. I remember, I remember I told, never mind. Well, I won't, I won't get into that. So, um, You've heard the, like the phrase, like preach the gospel all times, if necessary, use words, right? Mm-hmm. Like St. Francis never said it, but uh, <laughs> there, there is a point okay. that modern man listens more willingly to, to witnesses than to teachers is something that was said by Pope Paul VI. I do think the, the, the heart of the Eucharistic revival, right, is like if we have, so I used to have my students memorize this, this chat, this paragraph, Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1131, I was a sacraments teacher. 
The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church, right? The visible rites uh, by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the realities that they, right, that they confer. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required disposition. So here's what that means. The divine life that we lost in the fall, that the father wants to bring us back to where he wants to actually change us and transform us, right? God became man, so man might become God. We want to be, he wants to utterly, not just like a slightly more well-behaved person, but like a new life to the full, a new creation. That's what grace can do in my life and your life, right? That's probably what we've seen grace do in our lives, right? Like high school, Tim was not great, right? So, <laughs> you know, glory to God. So that's what can do. And that's the way that the way that God, the ordinary path by which God wants to change us and transform us so that we actually have a witness to present to the world, which is compelling, something that people could look at and say, I don't know what they believe. Catholics seem crazy. I don't know what I've heard of them, but there's something different about that person. If that comes through the Eucharist and 70% of Catholics don't believe, which is one of the prerequisites, right? They bear fruit in those who receive them with their required dispositions. That means faith. They have to actually believe in what's happening there for that sacrament to actually have an impact on their life. It's not just magic. That's a fundamental problem to the church's evangelistic witness to the world. That's a, that is a, 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 um, like, what would you say where it's like, that's not just like a, that's a, that's a cancer, not a cult. Like Mm -hmm. be the church that we're called to be. If so many Catholics don't know and have a living and active relationship with Jesus the Eucharist, so the bishops call it a three-year revival, right? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I think just to to be able to uh, take all of this and for our listeners to go back to take a look and see, uh, I would challenge them: where can they grow in their uh, devotion and knowledge to the Eucharist? Where where can they? Uh, live this faith out so that they can be an example towards others. Uh, and so I, I encourage them to think about that. But Tim, where can they get involved uh, if they're looking for more information on the National Eucharistic Revival or the National Eucharistic Congress? Uh, EucharisticRevival.org. The Congress website's coming. It's going to be EucharisticCongress.org. So, you know, uh, for now, there's a page on the Revival site that talks about the Congress and you can get information when that's, you know, coming. Registration will launch later this year. And then um, the the revival, there's places, we have a, a newsletter called the Heart of the Revival. And it's sort of like all of these apostolates and dioceses have been invited, you know, local creativity at the service of this mission. Here's where we sort of centralize all of that and make people aware um, of sort of what's going on in the the umbrella and broader vision of the revival. So join us there, meet us there. Uh, and, and I think more than anything, kind of ask, like, if this is something that lights you up, that... Uh, is a problem in the church that you'd love to be a part of addressing or something that you'd love to encounter yourself. Like the, the thing God's been doing in me most through this job at the revival is bringing me into a deeper relationship with him in the Eucharist. Like, and I mean that, you know? Uh, so like find that love yourself, come back to that love we had at first and, and, and pray and ask Jesus how he's calling you to be part of the solution, right? That's grassroots revival. Um, so Ah, Tim, I think that's so beautiful. And I want to challenge our viewers even further. You know, maybe it is going to that adoration at your parish that you're a little hesitant to. Maybe it is going and committing to an extra daily mass. Maybe you're doing all those things and you still feel like you have three kids clamoring all over you and you're pregnant and it's a little bit hard. And (laughs) then I would say like (laughs) just just a little bit. Hypothetically, sometimes you leave mass and you feel like, hmm. I know what I believe, but hmm. <laughs> and so maybe it's confession. 
And that that disposition that we really need is to let that grace come in so that we are able to receive that grace. And again, that it's not just a symbol of how God works and God can work outside of the sacraments, but it is the way that he has allowed us to experience that grace and to bring that into our own lives. And so thank you, Tim. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to help prepare uh, the hearts of this nation, of this world, of our church to receive Jesus personally in the Eucharist. And so we will link all of the information down below. Uh, And to all of our viewers, know that each one of us is praying for your encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist. Until next time.